Thank you, choir. Thank you, orchestra. Thank you, David. Thank you, Dr. Llewellyn, for leading us to encounter God through worship this morning. Let's go to God in prayer together. Father God, we do thank you for today and every day. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your house with your people. We're worshiping you and hearing from you, Lord. Speak to us now through your word, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What does marriage have to do with worship? For the past several weeks, we've been journeying this summer through the Old Testament book of Malachi with the hopes that God would teach us more about what it means to rightly worship Him. That's what this series is all about. We want to know God through biblical worship. And we've seen in the opening verses of Malachi chapter 1 that the continual love of God for his people is the beginning of our worship of God. And then we saw in the next several verses, verses 6 through 14 of chapter 1, that God only accepts our very best in our worship of him. And then last week in the first nine verses of chapter 2, we saw that the faithful ministry of the word of God for the glory of God is foundational to biblical worship. But the priests in that day, those that were responsible for leading that worship, the religious leaders, the ministry leaders in Israel in Malachi's day were falling drastically short. And through their inadequate teaching and lack of teaching of God's word, the people were stumbling, chapter 2, verse 8. They were stumbling in their faith and their obedience to God. And they weren't just stumbling in what they were giving to God and what they were attempting to honor God. And we saw that in chapter 1, that they were not giving God their best. They weren't giving God what he had asked for, what he had required. But their stumbling went even beyond that and had led to the collapse of their own marriages and their family relationships. In other words, our worship of God does not just involve what we give to God. It also involves how we treat others. It also involves how we respond and relate to other people, especially those that are closest to us. And this morning we will see that we must guard our marriages so that God is pleased with our worship. We must guard our marriages so that God is pleased with our worship. Look with me now at Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? This is that interrogation and reply style that we've seen over and over in Malachi, beginning with a question in order to drive home a point. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? We see right here in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, the first verse of this passage, that God's covenant with his people should unite them with one another. God's covenant with his people should unite them together with one another. You see, what is true of us Americans especially during weeks like this week, should have been a little bit more obvious 
among the people of God in that day, except for slightly different reasons. In that day, the people of God, Israel, the nation of God at that time, should have been united together in fellowship because they were together a people that God had called to be his people. Today we celebrate, and this week uh, we will especially celebrate together, that God has given us independence. That as a country we have, we have been the recipients of our freedom. But if for some reason some of us, or, or one of us, or someone among us, not necessarily in this room, but within our own country, decided that they were no longer happy to be Americans and they were going to conspire with uh, another nation to overthrow the United States of America, then that person or those people would be guilty of treason. They would be tried for, for betraying their country as traitors. And this is sort of like what we see going on here in Malachi chapter 2. The people of God in that day had broken fellowship with one another. And by their breaking of fellowship, they were profaning the covenant that God had made with their ancestors. And we saw this last week, that God was the creator of this covenant. It was his design, and we can trace it back in the Old Testament. We can see it very clearly in Genesis chapter 12, when he called out Abraham and promised that he was going to make him into a great nation, and his descendants would would be the recipient of God's blessing. And, And through those descendants, all people on earth would be blessed. And we see this language here in verse 10, did not one God create us? And in this context, it's not talking about create as in uh, creation of life like we often think of creation. But this is clearly speaking to God's creation of the nation of Israel, of his people as a nation. Saying that God controlled that, that God was involved in that process. That it was his design to, to, to pull these people apart, to bless them and to use them to be a light to all nations. And yet they had broken faith with each other. And by doing so, we're profaning or treating as common this covenant that God had entered into with their ancestors. He was going to be their God, and they were going to be his people. Yet they had turned their back on that covenant by breaking faith with one another. And we see in the following verses just how they were doing that. So notice that he starts general. Malachi is starting general. You've broken faith with each other, thereby profaning the covenant that God made with your ancestors. In verses 11 and 12, we see how exactly this was taking place. Look at verse 11. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary that the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. And right here in verses 11 and 12, we see the first accusation regarding marriage against the people of God. It's that they were marrying the daughter of a foreign God. In other words, they were marrying women who were devoted to, to other gods, false gods, pagan gods. And we see in verses 11 and 12 that God only allows his people 
to marry other believers. God only allows his people to marry other believers. And this is not something that was happening on the outskirts of Israel. Look at what it says in verse 11. This is happening in Judah and in Jerusalem, the political and religious center of the people of God in that day. And those people were responsible for turning their backs on their own people, breaking faith with one another, and pursuing after daughters of false gods. And this was detestable, an abomination, something that God hates. Now, it's important for us to understand what's being communicated here if we are going to understand this truth and take it away and apply it to our own lives as well. Because what is not being communicated here is that God hates interracial marriages. And I've heard it used in that sense, and perhaps you have as well. But that is simply ignorant and unbiblical. That is not at all what is being communicated here. What is being communicated here is that the people of God in that day were turning their backs on their own families, on their own nations, and they were running to a foreign nation that was devoted to false gods and entering into a marriage covenant with them, thereby exposing the very people of God to false worship, to those that run after false gods. We know from Scripture, we know from Malachi, that God is the God of the nations, that he will be praised from the rising to the setting of the sun, all across the earth, among all peoples. He is no respecter of persons. He does not favor or think more highly of one nation over another nation. And that's a good message for us to hear, especially this week, to be reminded of this week as we celebrate, and rightly so, the blessings that God has given us as his people and as Americans. But that is not what is being communicated here. What is happening here is that the people of God are defiling or desecrating the sanctuary, verse 11. And this is a reference not to a building or a place here. This is a reference to the people of God. Much like today, we say the church is not this building. The church is the people that make up the church, the people within the building. And so Malachi was saying that these men who had run after women who were devoted to false gods had desecrated or defiled the people of God by introducing and exposing them to people who were not devoted to the one true God, not devoted to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, but devoted to false gods. And by doing so, they were destroying and hindering and attacking the devotion of the people of God to God. These were the families that God had had called out and set apart to be a light to all nations. And yet people within those very families were were running after people that worshipped false gods. And it it was wrong in the eyes of God. And this is not just an Old Testament concept or Old Testament practice. We read about this clearly in the New Testament as well. book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, instructs us this way. 
Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Because of the closeness of the marriage relationship, God has designed and even commanded his people to only enter into marriage relationships with other believers. There is something about uniting together as a people that worship the same God that cannot be replaced in any other way. So young people, college students, single adults, do not even entertain the idea or the thought of dating or marrying an unbeliever. When the time comes for you to to pursue dating or marriage, if that's where God has led you, you make sure first and foremost that you are pursuing Christ far before that. And when the time comes, you look around and you see who else is pursuing Jesus Christ. And those are your options. Don't do anything else. Not only will you set yourself up for hardship, but you will go against the very command of God in Scripture. God only allows his people to marry other believers. And as a result of these people's disobedience, don't miss this, God rejected their worship. Verse 12, as for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. That it's not good enough to outwardly attempt to worship God if it's not if your relationship with God is not affecting the way that you live with other people, especially those closest to you, like those in your very family. Church, we must guard our marriages so that God is pleased with our worship. And as if it isn't bad enough that these people were running after foreign gods, we see that the charge against them was even worse than that. And so pick up with me in verse 13. Another thing you do, You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. And now here we have the second accusation regarding marriage against the people of God in that day. That not only were they running after women devoted to false gods, but they were divorcing their own wives in the process, probably out of convenience in their pursuit after these godless women. And God was not pleased with it. 
Now back up to verse 13. This verse makes it appear or look like, in many translations, including the one I just read, the NIV, that, that these men were repentant, that they were weeping out, that they were crying before God because God was not accepting their worship. But get this, some scholars, and I tend to agree with them, see these tears not as coming from the men, but from the women who have been left behind. The women who they entered into the marriage relationship with and had now turned their backs against. And so these women were were weeping before God and God was not going to receive the outward worship of the men who had treated them wrongly because of the sin in their lives, the sin that they were practicing and the grief that it was causing was coming up before God even before the outward sacrifices that these bringing God. So God rejected their worship. And we see a very similar command for us as husbands and wives in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where we husbands are told to be considerate and respectful of our wives so that nothing will hinder our prayers. There it is again. God is not just concerned with the way that we outwardly approach Him and worship, although that's very important and we've seen that. But our commitment to God must affect us on every level in our horizontal relationships as well, especially in the marriage relationship. We must guard our marriages so that God is pleased with our worship. God was looking beyond the outward practice and looking at the heart as he always does. And the reality was that these people in Malachi's day did not have their hearts set on him and the things of him. And as a result, they were breaking the marriage covenant and pursuing after those that were worshiping false gods. And it's very important for in our understanding of this and in our understanding of biblical marriage to understand the idea of a covenant. And this is spelled out clearly here in Malachi chapter 2, that marriage is a covenant between a husband and a wife. A covenant is a binding agreement between parties. Yet these people in Malachi's day had, had broken the covenant that God had made with their ancestors by breaking fellowship with one another. And now they had also broken that covenant by turning their backs on their legitimate spouses and pursuing those that worshipped false gods. But this is not just a covenant between a husband and wife. We're told very clearly here that in that day, just as it is today, it is a covenant before God. God is the witness, verse 14. And he remembers the promise that was made before him. And he remembers the circumstances. And he remembers when those individuals promised before the people of God and God himself that they would remain loyal to each other. And get this, he's very intentional, God, through Malachi and reminding these people of that promise through the language that he uses. In verse 14, he says that this was the wife of your youth. He says that again in verse 15. 
verse 14, he also says that she is your partner. And through this language, Malachi is reminding them, and God through Malachi, of the devotion and the dreams and the love and the partnership in life that was characteristic of those early days of their marriage. Remember those. Remember what you had. And do not forget it. That's what's being communicated here. And important for our understanding of the idea of a covenant, and very important and foundational for our understanding of Christian marriage, is to understand that marriage is a picture of a greater covenant that God has with His people. A picture of the covenant that God has with Israel, His wife, in the Old Testament. And even more so today, a picture of the love between the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and His bride, the church. And that is why this is such a big deal in the eyes of God. When we enter into Christian marriage We are offering the world a picture of the love that God has for his people. God entered into that relationship because he desired a nation of people that would know him and worship him. That God desired and still desires godly offspring, verse 15. But through these divorces and these pursuing after women, Worshiping false gods, unbelievers, both jeopardized this purpose and this plan of God. And the same thing is happening today. Today, people are also breaking the marriage covenant. And it is detestable in most cases in the eyes of God. He does not like it because people are doing whatever feels right or is convenient or seems to be the best decision at the time. Now, I want to be careful because I know this is a sensitive issue. And trust me, it is just as hard, if not much harder and much more uncomfortable to stand up here and say than it is for you to sit there and listen to. But I know this is sensitive because divorce has touched nearly all of us in some capacity or another. And the Bible does give some legitimate grounds for divorce. And we don't want to overlook those, although they are few. But that is not what was taking place in Malachi's day. Make sure you get that. What was taking place in Malachi's day is that people were turning their backs on God and the people of God, breaking faith with them in order to pursue something else that was not of God, not of the people of God. And it was displeasing in the eyes of God. But today, most people seem to be characterized by whatever feels right. Saying, doing, and thinking whatever feels right or as easy, or as comfortable at the time. And we can see this on a number of levels. It's very clear in the abundance of fornication and adultery among God's people. It's clear in the the very idea and common practice of a no-fault divorce. 
It's also very clear, especially in recent days, in the majority's view on gay marriage, in the increasing acceptance and toleration and acknowledgement of it as something legitimate in the eyes of God. And just like the priests in that day were mishandling the word of God and leading to, to people stumbling in these ways, the same thing is happening today. Now we expect these sorts of things and these sorts of views by people who are not the people of God, by the world. We expect them. But we're hearing it in the church and many churches that are adopting this stance that is contrary to the clearly spelled out design of God in Scripture. There is a clear standard for God's design on marriage and relationships that is spelled out in Scripture. And as the people of God, we are responsible for knowing it and adhering to it. We must guard our marriages so that God is pleased with our worship. Malachi chapter 2 calls us back to God's standard, God's ideal as being the beginning point, not our feelings, not what seems right at the time, but what is acceptable and appropriate as spelled out in Scripture before the God that we serve and the God that we worship. In conclusion this morning, I want to to offer four starting points for how we as the church can apply this core truth to our lives. And the first is this. As the people of God, we are to search the Bible. We are to search Scripture for God's standard because we are responsible for knowing it. And if we're going to claim to be the people of God and to worship the true God, then we are also responsible for practicing it. And this is under attack today, perhaps like it has not been before, although it's always been under attack. And we recognize that we don't just struggle against the world, but we also struggle against Satan and we also struggle against our own flesh. But we are responsible for knowing the standard and the design that God has laid out in his word. So we must search it. Number two, we all need to repent of our failure to live up to that standard. Because the reality is we have all fallen short, whether in word or deed or thought, all of us are prone to sin. And this has affected every single one of us on some level or another. And in some way or another, none of us have lived up to God's standard. But God is concerned with what we do today and what we do tomorrow and what we do with the rest of our lives. So where we have messed up and turned our backs on God, we repent before him and recognize that, that he is a God of grace and forgiveness. And if we confess our sins before him, He's faithful and just, and he forgives us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Number two, repent of our failure. And number three, we as the people of God ought to pray for our marriages and all marriages, and especially those marriages among the people of God in this church. We are responsible. We ought to be praying that God would guard our marriages and guard the marriages of others for his glory recognizing that that on our own we will fall short. But we need him and we desire him to 
to guard our marriages against falling victim to the whims of the world today. And lastly, fourth and finally, we're to look to the cross for the ideal example and the perfect picture of covenant faithfulness and covenant love between husband and wife. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 clearly tells us that husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now that is the ideal. That is the picture. And thank God that even though we don't measure up and we often have not been faith, faithful toward those that are closest to us and maybe we have been recipients of faithlessness as well, but we have a bridegroom that is always faithful. And that forever will be committed to us as his people. And will forever treat us with love and grace and mercy and respect that we don't deserve. And so we look to the cross for the example of how we are to relate to one another in the marriage relationship. And I want to close with the final words of Malachi chapter 2 verse 16. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for this time this morning. I thank you for the words of your book, the Bible. Lord, we acknowledge that they are true in every aspect and useful for instructing, for teaching, for rebuking, and for training in righteousness. Lord, and I pray that by your spirit that has been the case this morning. So, Lord, I pray that you would continue to remind us of the love that you have for us and the faithfulness that you have for your people, that you do not break faith with your people. Lord, give us grace, give us humility, give us a desire to know your word and to know the truth and to to live lives that are reflective of it, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would watch over us as we leave this place today, that you would guard us, so that we might be faithful to you and that we would be light shining in this dark world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name I pray this morning. Amen.